Sarah. Hi, Allison. So we just had an announcement from the president yesterday announcing new national restrictions to try to beat back the COVID uh, virus. Yeah, and above all, I guess, stop hospitals from collapsing under the weight of all these cases in intensive care. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm really trying to keg myself up, see something positive in all of this. Yeah, it's hard though, right? Because the numbers mm. are grim. Um, hopefully this month of reinforce breaking as Macron calls it will do something uh, yeah, among can't other call things. it lockdown yeah, yeah can't call it lockdown um, heaven forbid we use that word again mm. <laughs> um, among other things all the schools are closed for at least the next three weeks as of next week all but essential shops are closed around the country and the restrictions we've had here in Paris are now extended around France so no more travel more than 10 kilometers from home for anyone and then mm. there'll be reinforced police checks to make sure that happens yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, now, a lot of people have been calling, haven't they, for these new restrictions? For example, teachers, many teachers who were clamoring for the schools to shut, a group calling themselves the Red Pens. That's a bit reminiscent of the Yellow Vest. Mm -hmm. they, they filed a lawsuit this week against the government for failing in their eyes to protect their health by keeping schools open. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. France has been unusual, right, in that it's kept schools open since the end of last year's first lockdown. Um, the idea being that the benefits of kids being in school um, outweighs the risk of the virus. But the last few weeks, there have been an explosion of cases in schools. I mean, I even was starting to get nervous. We've had three out of our six classes closed recently because of cases or contact cases or of, of kids and teachers. And so the numbers have gone through the roof. And with all this, this British variant being so much more contagious, but there's also been more extensive testing of small kids who tend to be asymptomatic. Yeah, yeah. Beyond schools, there have been calls for more strict lockdown like we had last year. The members of France's scientific committee that advises the government, they've been insisting on this since January, this to allow numbers of critical cases to fall once and for all. And so that is happening. Well, Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but the good news in all of this is that we are told that this is the final effort we're being asked to make before we start to return to normal. Hmm. Um, whatever that Macron means. Said. Yeah, whatever that means. But Macron promised that uh, cultural venues, shops, restaurants and bars will be able to maybe start thinking about reopening about mid-May. Maybe start, maybe. But, you know, there, there's hope there. Um, all this thanks of course, the speeded up vaccination campaign certainly had a rocky start. Macron admitted there had been blunders in the rollout with problems with appointments and supply chains, but now it's on a roll. Yeah, so much for this uh, so-called vaccine skeptical France. Yeah, people are clamoring <laughs> for this vaccine and Macron has promised that they will now go at light speed. Um, and he's repeated the promise that anybody who wants the vaccination in France will be vaccinated by the end of the summer. And for the first time, he gave us an actual calendar. Yeah, so I will be able to get vaccinated in one of these spanking new uh, vaccination centers from the 15th of May That's onwards. A, there's a date. Apparently for me, it's the 15th of June. I'm a bit younger. So I guess we'll uh, have to take a break from the podcast at some point to uh, take advantage of our newfound COVID freedom, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> Alice 
Allison, talking about COVID, um, I've been interested in what's been happening in prisons. Yeah, this is a problem, I guess, all over the world, isn't it? In these closed spaces with people living in, in very closed quarters. Yeah, exactly. Rights groups have been sounding the alarm, though French prisons have actually been relatively spared of cases mm. because there are a lot of restrictions being put in place. It's a bit of a miracle that it's been rather contained. But it's been at the expense of prisoners' well-being. There are now huge restrictions on life behind bars. That's Dominique Simoneau, France's prison controller. So there are COVID clusters. For example, the Toul prison is no longer accepting new prisoners after a quarter of the 206 inmates and some guards tested positive at the start of March. And there have been worrying numbers of cases in a number of Paris area prisons. When Simono took over as controller in November, COVID was her first priority, not so much because the cases were exploding at the time, but because of the conditions. French prisons are already overcrowded. Yeah, so necessarily it's hard to do the social distancing. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And prison officials have put in place measures to attempt to stop the spread of the virus inside and also coming in from outside. Visits have been extremely restricted, with glass partitions between people, so they have to yell at each other to be heard. Kids aren't allowed to visit some of the prisons, so visitations have become hellish. Courses and training have been suspended, so has work. Exercise in some places has been reduced, so people are in their cells 23 hours a day. And when there are three of them in a cell, it's dreadful. We've been receiving some absolutely desperate letters. Simono is adamant that these conditions are not fair. I believe that you're sentenced to prison, but not to live with rats and cockroaches and getting COVID. Yeah, those are very strong words. Yeah, yeah. And as controller, she's kind of a prisoner rights advocate. She's actually a journalist. She covered prisons. Also, she taught in prisons. So she has some very strong, quite informed ideas about all this. Uh, the controller position was put in place in France in 2007. It's actually nominated by the president. And she inspects prisons, detention centers, closed hospitals, juvenile detention centers, anywhere that people are being held. And Simono says that when she was offered the job, she originally didn't want to take it. And then she realized that maybe she could make a difference from the inside, as it were. Hmm. So making a difference, what can she actually do for prisoners' rights? Huh. Well, not much officially. So she and hmm. her team inspect the sites and they can produce reports and recommendations to the justice ministers, lawmakers or magistrates. Sometimes they listen to what we say, sometimes not at all, because we cannot give orders. I've only one method, which is to go to the media, which used to be my world and I will not hold back. Ah, the power of going public. Yeah, yeah, and it can have an impact. She's actually trying that right now, insisting that the COVID situation is really becoming untenable. What she would like is to see these prisoners released. So during the first confinement in March of last year, the justice minister at the time allowed for the early release of some prisoners. So the prison population went down. Originally, it was 72,000. By the end of the summer, it was 58,800. So quite a few people let out. Today, there are more than a thousand new prisoners per month. So it's going up. And Simono says this is completely irresponsible given the COVID situation. She would like the justice minister to order early releases again, but it's become politically more complicated. So we're getting closer to presidential elections next year. President Emmanuel Macron is tipped to be up against the hard right Marine Le Pen in the second round.
Unfortunately, we're entering an election period, and Macron's party, the party in power, doesn't want to give any ammunition to the far right. They're refusing to take measures that might be unpopular and could put them in the crosshairs of the far right. Yeah, even though she says that releasing prisoners doesn't mean just opening prison doors and letting everyone out. These are people at the end of their sentences, with a few weeks to go. We're not releasing terrorists or violent people, and they're under the control of surveillance judges. These are not irresponsible measures. That's what's frustrating. Yeah, but politics clearly getting in the way there. Yeah, yeah. And beyond COVID, there are more fundamental problems of overcrowding and poor conditions of French prisons. Even before the need for social distancing, there were already too many people in not enough space. Simono says this is because judges sentence people to prison way too quickly in France. It's seen as the only solution, even though she says there are alternatives. In the minds of French people, and unfortunately in the minds of judges, there's the idea that the only sentence is time behind bars, even though many alternatives exist, like community service, ankle bracelets, probation. These are not used enough. The only reference is prison. And when someone is released with an ankle bracelet or on probation, some will say that it's too permissive. Yeah, there are always some people who will want punishment rather than rehabilitation. Yeah, and she says this is kind of cultural here in France, a way of seeing crime and punishment in the eyes of both the general public and by judges. And she says it's supported by a lack of political motivation to change anything. So for now, for example, with COVID, she's under no illusions. Prisoner releases seem to be off the table. Um, prisoners, prison wardens, they probably will not be made a priority for vaccines. She does have some hope for longer term reform. Um, the government is under external pressure, both in France and in Europe. The European Court of Human Rights has denounced French prison conditions. Yeah, not for the first time either. Yeah, yeah. And the French Constitutional Council has actually ordered Parliament last month to pass a law to overturn an article in the penal code that kept prisoners from denouncing bad prison conditions. So they just did that. So prisoners can now file official complaints, which they couldn't do before. Um, Simono said that this law um, is mediocre, but even watered down, it's a step in the right direction. All right, so Alison, I'm going to take you back now to April 1st, 1921, 100 years ago today, in Santiago de Chile, a Caudron G3 plane lands after four hours in the air. It's rickety, it's a single engine, a propeller. Oh, I can see it. One of those early planes. Yeah, yeah. And in the pilot seat is Adrienne Bolon. She's just crossed the Andes from Argentina. She's accomplished something that few people have ever done at the time, and no woman had ever done before her. She's welcomed as a hero in Chile. She meets the president. The French consul, though, doesn't show up. She is French. Um, he thought the trip was an April Fool's joke. Ah, such was the belief in women at the time. <laughs> uh, but it was no joke, right? No, no, no joke. Bolon was a pilot. She was one of the first women to fly planes in France. Um, as a teenager, she was a partier. Legend has it that she became mm -hmm. a pilot to pay off her gambling debts. Oh, interesting idea, but not the most obvious way of doing that. No, no. But in 1919, age 24, she signed 
signed up for flying lessons. She became the 13th woman in France to earn a pilot's license. And she went to work for René Coudron, who was France's first plane maker. She became a test pilot after Coudron challenged her to perform a loop on the rickety G3. And she did it. And he realized that not only was she good, that she could also be a great figurehead for the brand, showing how easy it was to fly his planes. Oh, so easy. Even a woman can do it, of course. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, though she took the opportunity. She crossed the English Channel in August 1920, the first woman to make the flight. And then Coudron sent her to South America to promote his planes. The G3 came with her, dismantled, put in her luggage. <laughs> it was that small. Mm -hmm. um, Bolon was already thinking of how to make a name for herself, and she decided she would attempt to fly across the Andes. People told her she was crazy. It was treacherous, high peaks, strong winds. The G3 had been designed as a World War I military observation plane, so not ideal for this mm. kind of trip, right? It couldn't fly more than 4,005 meters up, well below the mountain range summit, so she'd have to go between and around them in the valleys. But undeterred, she took off April 1st, 1921, 6 a.m. from Mendoza at the base of the Andes in Argentina. And her goal, Santiago de Chile, 200 kilometers away. Oh, the courage or perhaps folly of youth. Yeah, definitely, because she left without even a flight plan. Um, she hmm. did say later that the night before, a woman had come to her hotel room and told her that when she saw an oyster-shaped lake, she should turn left towards the mountain face instead of right into the valley. Hmm. Um, she said that she did it, and the wind lifted her up before she crashed into the mountain. And later she learned that the woman had been sent to her by a medium. And Bonon said that she never believed in the occult. But as she said, you have to admit that it takes some effort not to believe in that situation. Mm, the oyster-shaped lake, I'll, I'll watch out for that one. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I guess listen to a woman who comes to your hotel room and tells you things. Anyway, it seems to yeah. have worked. Bonon flew for four hours, 17 minutes. The plane had no windshield. The wind was strong. At one point, she was circling in place for 40 minutes, and it was freezing. She had stuffed her suit with newspaper, but it didn't work very well. And when she landed in Chile, very cold. Um, people gathered to celebrate. In France, though, her accomplishment went largely unnoticed, and mm. she'd been making Coudron's wife kind of jealous, so he actually ended up firing her. But she continued to fly, and in 1924, the French government did give her the Legion of Honor. Oh, better late than never, I guess. Yeah. In mm. 1930, she married another aviator, Ernest Vichon. They became active in leftist causes in World War II. They stayed in France, became part of the resistance, and Adrienne Boulan died in Paris in 1975. One of those women you always wished you might have had the chance to meet. <laughs> Amour and love, you know. Sarah, there's been another Me Too moment in France recently, which um, I thought it would be good to, to talk about today. Okay, another Me Too moment. Tell me about yes. it. Yes, so we've had women in cinema, women chefs, women journalists. Now women sports journalists are calling mm. out sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Now you don't see that many women in the business, I guess, not many female football commentators. I suppose it could be difficult to defend yourself or stand up for yourself if you're 
the only woman in the room at an editorial meeting or something like that. That's absolutely the case. In fact, it's such a male-dominated profession that it's making women more vulnerable to harassment in the first place. And then when it does happen, it, well, it's harder for them to talk about it. Mm. Now, the extent of that harassment was revealed in a recent TV documentary, uh, Je ne suis pas salope, je suis journaliste, which translates as, I'm not a slot, I'm a journalist. Mm. And in that documentary, more than a dozen women sports journalists shared their stories of the sexist remarks and the harassment that they get regularly uh, from colleagues and people on social media. When every day you get messages on Twitter and Instagram and you have people telling you you're rubbish, where well, you start thinking it's true, says journalist Charlotte Namura. I really suffered. Now, Charlotte used to present a TV football program on Sunday mornings. She says she used to dread turning on her phone after the program. I was the only one, she says, in the team getting comments about my appearance, saying that I was ugly, had a big arse, or that they wanted to screw me. I got rape threats. It's all so violent. I just go home and cry. So this is on social media, right? So coming from the general public. Yeah, but the documentary also showed how harassment comes from within the profession. Oh, her face has fattened out since she had a baby. Perhaps we won't put her on screen anymore, this journalist recalls. I was harassed by someone for months, death and rape threats, says another. I realize that when you're a journalist, the danger comes from within. Women's suffering exists. It is legitimate. So what's been the reaction to this documentary? It's caused quite a stir. Even the French sports minister said she wasn't surprised, though, by the stories. But the mm. scandal also came from what was left out of the documentary. The TV channel Canal Plus that broadcast it cut out a six-minute chunk from the final version. And that was an interview with its own star football pundit, Pierre Menez. He was accused of harassing two of his fellow female sports journalists, including Marie Portolano the woman who made the documentary. It included a scene where she confronted him over an incident back in 2016 when he lifted her skirt and touched her buttocks in full view of the studio audience. Do you remember lifting my skirt? Portolano asks him. Not at all, he replies. Would you do it again? Yeah, he says, even though it's humiliating, you were humiliated, he says. Well, I'm sorry about that, but I'm a bit of a rebel. If I can no longer tease a chick because she's a chick, well, that's just unbearable. Wow, that's pretty shocking. Um, I imagine he's been called out on this. Yeah, there's been a flood of criticism, especially on social media, and Canal Plus has pulled him from their big football show. More importantly, perhaps, there's an episode two to this Me Too sports story. The day the documentary aired, a group of over 150 women sports journalists known as the FJS Collective published an open letter in Le Monde newspaper. Their slogan is, Occupons le terrain, uh, let's gain and hold ground.
Yeah, and terrain means ground, but also pitch, like a football pitch. Yeah, so a good play on words there. <laughs> They're calling for better representation and protection for women in the profession because only 10% of France's 3,000 sports journalists are women and only around 13% of the TV and radio commentary you can hear comes from women. But women can't even be in the field if they're not being trained as sports journalists in the first place. I spoke to 23-year-old Sarah Genoun about this. She's a student in journalism in Paris, and she's one of the co-founders of the FJS Collective. She wants to specialize in sport, but she got off to a very rocky start. It's a dream to become a sport journalist. I think sport is exciting and it brings people together. That's why I decided to do it. So you tried to get an internship in a, a sports publication. And what happened, Sarah? I wasn't taken seriously and I was harassed by a sport journalist. He was older than me. I was 21 and he was 40. He was sending me messages late at night saying... If you were in front of me, I would kiss you, or, or are you a virgin? Are you a virgin? Yes, he was asking questions like this. So I'm guessing that you didn't take on that internship? No, because as a result of all of this, I lost all my confidence in myself and in my plan to become a sport journalist. I didn't feel legitimate because I was somehow reduced to a sex and to just be a woman who have no experience. And I was also afraid of running into malicious people like him. So you got involved with this collective, the FJS, that's a female sports yeah. journalist collective. You found solidarity? Yes, because Mejdaline, who is the co-founder of the association, she came to give a conference in my school and after that I interviewed her about the place of women in sport journalism and I talked to her about my own experience and she told me that it was harassment and I didn't know it before she told me that. And when we created FGS we realized that we all have been victim of harassments and sexism and rude words by men. So the collective, the FJS, how has that helped you? It helped me because it gave me more confidence and more hope to do sports journalism. And I think it will give the same hope to other young women who want to do the same job. Because you think that women are equally capable of being sports journalists. That's the thing, right? Yes, of course. There's not a job for a man and there's not a job for a woman. And with football in particular? We are used to boys saying it can be unpleasant and annoying to listen a woman voice doing commentary on football. And we have to show them, we have to break the system and show them that we can do it too. Sarah, you told me earlier that you're writing more about gastronomy than sport nowadays, but is it still your dream one day to try and become a sports journalist if the situation improves? Yes, of course. I haven't given up my dream. I'm very well surrounded today and I want to show the men that they didn't win the game and they will not so it sounds like she hasn't completely lost faith. Um, what are the chances of anything evolving? 
Well, L'Equipe, the big French sports daily, made a statement to all its staff about how unacceptable it was to harass women. Uh, France's sports minister said last week that French society is at a turning point for women's rights in the sports world. She sees all of this as a chance to open up the industry's eyes to the reality. The FJS collective is organizing conferences in journalism schools to talk about harassment, and it plans to set up an observatory to monitor how progress is going in the field. In any case, Case, the gloves are clearly off, and to use another sports pun, the ball is rolling. We've come to the end of Spotlight on France this week. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. If you want to get in touch, email us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks, Thursday, April 15th. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. <laughs>